You've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. My guest today, John. Well, thank you. Is going to help me go over three movies that all deal with fake realities. They all have a mind screw component, whether they're screwing over the characters or screwing over the audience, asking it what's real, what isn't, and delving into the deeper mysteries in the film and also overall in life. We were going to do Dark City in the 13th floor. These are all late 90s. You've got The Matrix as well. And The Matrix is obviously the bigger box office draw out of the three. And I think we'll just go in order of release. Let's start with Dark City from 1998. It's about an amnesiac named John Murdoch who wakes up in a seedy hotel, and he's the chief suspect in a series of murders. As he searches for his own identity and innocence, a deeper mystery reveals itself. Why does the city never see daylight? And how is it connected to the cadaverous strangers that are chasing after Murdoch as doggedly as the police? Cadaverous. I like that. That's a very good description of the strangers. It's also literally true. Talking to the director in interviews, they are supposed to be dead bodies. Oh, okay. If they really wanted to get that point across... Maybe not have everybody that plays a stranger be a pasty white guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I swear to God, one of those tall white guys was Stephen Merchant at one point. <laughs> it's like, no, no, they're not pale because they never see the sun. They're supposed to be dead. Oh, well, I mean, Stephen Merchant never looks like he's been in the sun. He doesn't know what the sun is. <laughs> now, a case could be made that general moviegoers aren't going to know a thing about Dark City. How did you discover it? Why did you end up watching it at all? I think one of the other Matrix movies had come out, and someone's like, we gotta watch Dark City, and it's just late-night drunk film school session. Because they're so similar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my case, it was a, a rare thing where my dad saw it on VHS, and he mentioned it to me because he was really taken by the premise, and he even gave me a mini-summary of the movie, which typically never happens. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any interest in it, because I was 10 or 11 at the time, so it got returned to the rental store without me watching it, and then some years later, toward the end of high school, I decided to get it on DVD, and then I loved it, and then I ended up seeing the director's cut, and I loved it even more. That's worth mentioning. There are two versions of the movie that are out there, the theatrical cut and then a director's cut that's about 10 minutes longer. Cost a dollar more to rent. <laughs> yeah, that's why John didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> the shorter cut that starts with a narration where Kiefer Sutherland just gives away the whole movie, <laughs> that is really meant for people that don't want to think too hard because the executives asked Alex Proyas to put in the narration because they didn't think people would understand the movie. <laughs> Do you feel like it doesn't answer enough by the end of it that they needed the narration? They didn't need the narration because Keither basically says all that stuff again later in the movie. I don't know what I'm going to do with my extra dollar that I saved, but I do kind of wish I'd seen the director's cut. 
Were you a fan of the William Hurt character, the detective Bumstead? Yes, I was. He, I thought, was a good anchor. He fit the tone perfectly, I thought. Detective noir film. He didn't stand out, even with the weirdos running around in Matrix outfits. Then you need to check out the director's cut, because those extra minutes, a lot of them are given to him. Ooh. Because this movie has a fake reality plot, it's inevitably going to brush up against some existential issues. What flavor would you say this movie exhibits? The aspect of the story that comes through the fake reality that resonates with you in particular? I guess that classic sci-fi trope of what does it mean to be human. They're taking away the memories, and they're still seeing if people are people, I guess. And I think that's just a classic sci-fi trope. And do you think the aliens who are the strangers, do you feel like we get enough information about them, or do you wish we got more? That's tough, because I don't think we got a lot of information. All that info was just kind of dumped at the beginning of the theatrical cut, but I don't think we needed more information about them. I think I'm happy with the amount of information we got. Compared to the other two movies we're going to talk about, they mention a lot throughout this movie how paraphernalia can really define who you are. Like, you keep a journal, and it's got a bunch of entries in it. So, of course, they must have all happened, and that's who you are. Or photographs. Hey, there I am, standing with this other person. It must mean we know each other. <laughs> Even though it could be totally fabricated, which in this movie it is, by the strangers, being something of a hobbyist, that really struck a chord with me in terms of tying your existence to the things you own. I have a lot of retro stuff, but would I necessarily describe myself as a game collector or a Laserdisc geek because I have one hooked up to a tube TV? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> what part of the filmmaking itself did you enjoy the most? The lighting, honestly. They had to make constant dark interesting. So I feel like the lighting and the cinematography, they really just had to step up their A-game so people didn't get bored, I guess. And the whole film has this great aesthetic. I loved the aesthetic of the city. It felt like a dark, gritty city that you wouldn't mind quite living in. It's not going to be the best place, but you see a lot of movies where they make these horrible, dark places. Like, why would anyone, like, seven? Who would want to live in that city? <laughs> Who would want to live in seven? Um, <laughs> but this city, they make it something livable. What I noticed was the use of greens and browns, and it gives it a, a rusty look, but it doesn't feel like it goes too far in making things muddy on screen. A less involved director, if they made it now, they would just put a green filter over the entire movie and call it a day. Sure, there are strong color choices, but there's still normal skin tones happening. There's still neon with some nice red and blues happening. So it's not totally one color that they put over the whole movie. It's all in-universe reasons why, too, why it's not like just some bright place. Did you notice how there's almost a strong light source in every single shot? Yeah, and I think that goes back to old Detective Noir stuff. There might be another reason. I could just be horribly wrong, but I think it is good homage to 
Hitchcock and stuff. This could totally play black and white. Mm-hmm. Sure, not all the lighting in the movie is natural, and there is a painterly way that they use light. It is contrived in a lot of ways, but in the best way, because it really just highlights all the characters, and even though it is super dark, you can see what's happening in every shot. It's very detailed. I waited till the sun went down to watch it. So did I. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't need to see my reflection in it, damn it. I want to see all the shadows on screen. (laughs) (laughs) Sad sad reflection of myself staring back at me. (laughs) What were some of your favorite scenes or performances? I liked all the bad guys. Kiefer, he was weird to me at first, and then he just grew on me through the whole movie. Obviously, William Hurt is great. I liked them all. But the scene where Kiefer is in the tub... In the bathhouse, I guess that is. Yeah. It's just an indoor pool, I guess. And he's having that conversation with the stranger. Uh, the stranger's circling him while he's in the pool. Dr. Schreiber, most unfortunate it is that we were forced to seek you out here. I'm sorry, I... Failed to report in, yes. I was frightened. I have a weak heart, you know. Must we reproduce Mr. Murdoch's memories again? I tried to imprint him, but he woke up and knocked the syringe right out of my hand. I tried to stop him, but he was too fast. He has no memories, then. Oh, fragments. You have had strays before, right? This is no stray, Doctor. This one can tune. I thought only you had that ability. You will process another template of the subject's memories, yes? I thought it was just such a good scene because it set the tone for the rest of the movie of the strangers are not to be trifled with, but Kiefer's up to something, and they're arguing about John covers all the bases. Do you think that Kiefer Sutherland is an unsung character actor? Yes, I do. A lot of his earlier stuff he shows up in, everyone loves him. Uh, Everyone's going to bring up Lost Boys. His role in Young Guns. Yes! They do put him in a lot of star roles. I think he's proven that if you give him a good supporting role, he can chew it up like anybody. Agreed. My favorite scenes were the ones that showcased the dilemma of their fake city and how satisfying it was to get different perspectives on it, how people would feel realizing that they live in a fake world. You have Emma, played by Jennifer Connelly. She's supposedly Murdoch's wife. And I'm going to say Murdoch, because if I say John, John, people might get confused. Uh, Okay, that's fair. So when Emma visits Murdoch in jail, and they're talking on phones through the glass. I never meant to hurt you, John, and I did it, and I don't know why I did I wish I could take it all back. This affair of yours, whatever it is that you think you're supposed to have done, you didn't do it. I don't believe it ever happened. What do you mean? What if we never knew each other before now? What if the first time we ever met was last night in our apartment? And everything you remember, and everything that I'm supposed to remember never really happened. Someone just wants us to think it did. And she has this line where she says, basically, she doesn't care if their marriage is a lie. She still feels like she loves him, and that's enough for her. Later in the canal scene, you got Murdoch and Bumstead talking to Schreiber as he lays out how the strangers kidnapped them all to conduct the experiment. 
in that scene, the characters are left wondering who they were and what they lost. You get all these different reactions. And it's just nice to see that the premise really gets flexed in those moments. Because it's almost like, why do a fake reality if you just march on to the next scene and don't really stop to go, well, how would you feel about it? Mm -hmm. I wish there was an alternate version of the movie where it's primarily from Bumstead's perspective. Wouldn't that be cool? It is a mystery. We're with the primary suspect. A lot of those movies, you follow the detective. So that would be very interesting to follow the clues, because you just think it's a killer, and then find out there's a lot of weird shit going on. Like, when he's listening to Schraber talk about the setup, he looks like he's going to cry. <laughs> like, his eyes are watery. <laughs> there was, a, I think, a scene in the car where he had something from his mother. Instead of talking about her, he goes into detail about how certain things don't make sense. Being a detective himself, he's probably trying to think all that through. Yeah, I got this. I got. I think it was a... Uh, accordion? Was it accordion? It was something he was playing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He got it from his mother, and instead of talking about his mother, he talked about how if he thinks about specific things, none of it makes sense. Yeah, it's really easy to feel for the characters when Murdoch or somebody else starts poking holes in the overall narrative and just says, well, have you ever heard of Shell Beach? Do you know how to get there? <laughs> no one knew how to get there. No one knew how to get to the express line. Everyone just shrugged it off. of It's the express line, but well, how come it never stops at any station? Let's take a moment to thank TSC fans from around the world. Tell us which of our recommendations you liked and who your favorite guests are via the screen companion at gmail.com. Further support the host by purchasing a digital or print copy of his sci-fi novel, Traversal, The Weight of Worlds, available on Amazon. As much as I love Dark City, I have to ask you, do you have any criticisms for it? I kind of felt the third act, the final duel between Murdoch and the head stranger was out of character, I think, for the rest of the movie. What was that like on set? They're fighting with mental powers. And so on set, it's just like, all right, now look angry at the camera. All right, now look weird at the camera. I just felt like, ah, this seems a bit too sci-fi action-y compared to the rest of the movie. Absolutely is. But then I'm left wondering, how do you accomplish the same plot points without hitting a crazy crescendo? Because in some ways now, now follow me here, John. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of Total Recall, where Quaid is giving the people air. <laughs> Give the people the air. <laughs> and how it's such a giant moment and the music is swelling. It's kind of what Murdoch is doing in this movie. He's stopping the stranger's control over everybody's lives. I don't feel like you can really get away doing it with a whisper, where the head stranger looks at him and goes, Okay, we give up. We'll leave. Goodbye. And they float away. Bye. <laughs> the rest of the movie is so quiet and ruminates on things. At least they don't go into crazy martial arts action fight scenes. <laughs> <laughs> the fate of the universe comes down to a fist fight. Whereas in this one, it ultimately is about a battle of wills. 
So you can get your will across by just staring at somebody and yelling at them. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably a metaphor for like congressional hearings or something. (laughs) (laughs) There's all this crap blowing up around them and it tipped its hat to the fact that it was a boring climax. Did you chuckle when the lead stranger gets flung back at the very end? And Murdoch specifically raises a water tower so he'll crash into it. Yeah. <laughs> we can have him floating away nicely. He's got to hit that water tower so we can have a cool explosion. <laughs> I know what it's doing on a movie level, but on a character level, because they have an aversion to water, I almost feel like that was a final middle finger at the guy. Oh, yeah. That was the perfect. Here's sunlight and water. The beach that everyone's trying to get to. Because that water tower explodes with such force, is that why the strangers are afraid of water? Because if they touch it, it'll explode? Maybe. That could be magnesium. Yeah, right? (laughs) Some element in high school that the teacher always dropped water into. This is just an ounce and it explodes. This is like in my top ten, maybe my top five. I'm going to say my criticism is... I don't like the title screen. Because the disc I have has both versions, I wanted to see, is this the same way in both? And it is. It looks so freaking cheap where it's just (laughs) stupid looking spirals and the title looks so boring. I feel like I heard somewhere that title screens are their own separate budget from the rest of the movie. Sometimes they don't get approved and sometimes they do. And that the director doesn't necessarily have control over it, like it's a totally separate unit. Yeah. Well, all the love and care in the rest of the movie was not put in that title screen. No, that was definitely a some overworked, probably overworked from the Matrix special effects house. And it's not the filmmaker's fault, but as someone who enjoys poster art, and has a few posters myself, I absolutely loathe the promotional art for this movie and the main poster is a picture of you can't even tell it's rufus sewell it might not even be him it's just a dude screaming in front of a clock face yeah <laughs> who sees that on opening day and goes oh i gotta check this out at the theater <laughs> what is this i was reading background information and the director was talking about how he was seeing test audience reactions and the, this is going to be a cult classic later but i'm not making my money now <laughs> When do you think the movie actually takes place? Well, that, I don't know. What if it was 1999 and they were flying through space and then everyone else on Earth is just fine? Well, something I got stuck on this watch was the idea that because it's always nighttime, whenever the clock strikes 12, it's always midnight. If they do that every 12 hours and scramble people's brains... Schraber says at one point that he's administered dozens of imprintings on people. So it's possible that the experiment hasn't been going on that long, possibly even less than a month. Mm -hmm. It's part of the fun of asking these questions, these logistical questions, like, how are they going to survive? But if you figure the strangers are just constantly messing with them, maybe they weren't planning on them living much longer than a month or two. Yeah, they weren't meant to survive. So there's limited resources on this island, and once it's over, it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Once they're out of food, that's it. 
But that's only one way to read it, and that's what I love about this movie so much. There's so many interpretations. I hate when people come up with theories that have nothing to do with details of the actual plot, and it's almost like you're just writing your own fanfic, and it doesn't matter what movie you're talking about, you're going to come up with the story you want. But this, they intentionally play with ideas. You mentioned the architecture and the film noir stuff. That was definitely something playing in their minds. I saw hints of Edward Hopper, the painter, in the way the light was used. One of the supplementals on the Blu-ray is five ways you can interpret the movie. And it's all supported by stuff in it. They give you so much to play with if you want to. That's interesting. I like that they sent it with the movie. That's not like some YouTube channel or us going off about like, well, maybe it's this. That's official promotion material from the movie. So now let us move on to The Matrix from 1999. John, tell us about the plot. I am so glad you chose this one for me to explain opposed to the other two. <laughs> <laughs> That was definitely done on purpose. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. The Matrix is about our hero, Neo, aka Mr. Anderson, who gets caught up in a Jesus Christ allegory. He finds out his world is an illusion, and he's the one who's going to save it. This is such a hodgepodge of ideas. Dark City not only wanted you to think those ideas but they gave you some real stuff to support these ideas. The Matrix, it's more like they're going 80 miles an hour on a highway, and there are a couple of landmarks. Quickly just drive by them, acknowledge their presence, and move on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. We were both around in 99, so I'm wondering what your memories are of the movie prior to its release, when it came out, following it. What do you recall? A buddy of mine went to see it first in theaters. He was so blown away. You gotta watch the movie. You gotta watch the movie. They have a promotional website. Go to the website. I looked up the website, and it was just a bunch of weird shit. <laughs> I was like, well, what is it? He's like, okay, so they're all in the Matrix, right? I was like, yeah, what's the Matrix? Like, this is the Matrix, but he's pointing at the computer screen. <laughs> and so we really didn't explain it. So finally, we went and saw it in theaters. Ah, movie's great. And then we went again to a drive-in. It was a double bill. They played this in 13th Floor. No way. We watched that at the drive-in. Those movies don't jive. That's what they play, then. <laughs> That's what somebody who doesn't really pay attention to movies or doesn't care and just needs to come up with a double bill. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're both fake reality movies. Well, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they totally fit. I remember that time. This movie was the greatest thing since sliced bread up until the sequel came out. Were you in high school? Yes. I think I was 16 or 17 at the time. Okay, so like perfect age for this movie. Oh yeah, I was the target audience. How jazzed were you for the sequels? I was super jazzed. I remember one of my friends suggested it was going to be bad, and I was just like, the thought of that was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the only time we're going to reference the sequels. I really don't like them. I treat this movie as a standalone film. Those other movies don't exist to me. <laughs> this is, yeah, let's keep it at this. I was like fifth or sixth grade when this came out. Didn't stop my dad from taking me, though. We loved it in the theater. 
And as out of the box as parts of this movie are, there's a lot of traditional Hollywood stuff at play. That final shot panders to the audience of that popcorn feeling of like, yeah, it ended on a really high super note. Oh, yeah. I love the movie because of that. And he's literally flying away. But it worked. It did work. I was jazzed. The song was great. I remember like loving that song and Rage Against the Machine, I think, did it. <laughs> I was like, I gotta check this band out. And it remained a talking point throughout high school. One of my other guests on this show, Ian, he's a filmmaker now. And I'd be curious to know how he feels about it in retrospect, because back then he was so into it. But I wonder if now he would brush under the rug his enthusiasm back then. <laughs> <laughs> so what stood out about the movie to you on this rewatch this is the wachowski siblings second film ever period they made some kidnapped caper called bound before this this is such a big movie for a second outing it's crazy and i forgot how good it was it's still a good movie it's still fun it's fun um <laughs> <laughs> before this when was the last time you'd saw it um not been it's been years. Yeah, it was like 10, 15 years for me. Especially after the sequel. It's just like, well, I don't want to go back to the first one. <laughs> what I picked up on this rewatch, I feel like the characters are they're just really empty. Who is Thomas Anderson outside of being a hacker at night and a cubicle jockey by day? His character specifically once he wakes up in the real world and sees how dystopian it is, they acknowledge it for all of 30 seconds. He freaks out and he vomits. Mm -hmm. And then he's just okay with it for the rest of the movie. It's like, buddy, you know, you've lived three decades thinking one thing, and now you've woken up in this totally different world. I think Cypher, Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, I think he's affected by it so much more, and he's lived with it, the secret. He's lived with it a lot longer. Yeah. How does that happen? That doesn't make sense. He gets it more. It's just like... That's what makes him the one. Yeah, this all sucks. This is terrible. Put me back in. In terms of the fake reality being a particular flavor compared to the other movies we're doing, what stands out about it to you? In this one, the fake reality almost feels more like an excuse for action scenes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying. Right? <laughs> like, compared to the other two, the fake reality is meant to really push characters and their understanding. You know? And this one's just like, ah, it's fake. Look at them do all these flips. It takes what should be a real profound revelation and just turns it into, we got to beat the robots. The end. Yeah. We must defeat the robot. How are we going to do it? In this computer program. But there's robots in the real world, too. Nope. <laughs> you just got to beat up a guy who's programmed to be really good at fist fighting. I couldn't help but think of Neo as a really good StarCraft player. <laughs> it's an MMO. It's a big multiplayer, massively multiplayer online game. It's like, okay, you're really good in this video game world, but... Once you wake up and have to participate in the physical world, you're a loser. <laughs> you're just wearing, what, thermal underwear and eating goop. 
Now, this could just be for censorship reasons, but when he wakes up in his pod, surrounded by all the other pods of people having their heat sucked out by the robots, if you look closely, especially in HD, he doesn't have a pee-pee, and I don't think he even has nipples. So are we supposed to believe, and it would make sense in the context, that since they're tank-grown, they don't have sex organs? I could see that. They're all androgynous. They're tank-grown. They don't need them to have any sex. So robot logic is going to be like, no, anything unnecessary, get rid of. So if I was Neo, I would be spending all my time in the digital world, and I would use my force powers to give myself the biggest wiener. <laughs> 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 what a messiah he turned out to be. <laughs> now, Neo and Trinity are both tank-grown, so it makes their contrived love affair even more tragic, because it's like they're never going to be able to do anything about it. <laughs> it does. It's, I don't, okay, what do we do? I don't know. Stand in the room together and hold hands? It's all we can do. We can rub our areas together, but there's nothing there. Compared to the other movies, there's an element of it for sure in Dark City, but the idea of the one and how that trope plays out in so many movies, so often they turn me off because it just never feels quite earned how these people become the one. Did it rub you the wrong way at all? Not really, honestly, because it was such a, like you said, contrived thing. It's almost lazy writing. All our problems are going to be solved by the single dude. In the writing, it's harder to show a whole resistance doing it when really you could just have the one hero save the day. Like we said, it always comes down to the fate of the world is a fist fight. And why is the fate of the world always a fist fight? <laughs> How does Morpheus... Maybe I missed it in the movie. Help me out here. Does he ever say why he thinks Neo is the one? No. He mentioned how he knew the old one. And if that guy died and didn't save the world, he has personal experience with the one not being able to save the world. Why does he even think this the one is going to be able to save the world? If he does save the world, firstly, there's one city left in the real world populated by human beings, okay? And if they unplug everybody that's in the Matrix... Even if they have the robots on their side, they've scorched the planet. It's perpetually nighttime. They can't grow anything on the surface. How do you support all those people? I think it's fair to say that if they freed everybody, it would come down to, okay, hey guys, uh, this world we're living in, it's all fake. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, we can't unplug you because we can't support you in the real world. So you just got to stay here. <laughs> I think it would require more energy to keep all those inanimate human bodies alive than it would get out of them. Most of them, I think, are going to be cool with not finding out about the new world. It's a big video game. You could just tell people, like, ah, just plug in for eight hours, and we could still get the energy from you, and you could go live your life in the real world, too. And we'll just make it a big, fun video game. There's ways. They could have talked this out. I'm comfortable spoiling it because I think it's revealed by the halfway point. So you got Cypher, who is a traitor among them, and I totally agree with his position when he's talking about eating the steak and not wanting to know that it's not real. Yeah, it's a hot dog situation. You don't want to know how the hot dog's made. 
I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. It just ends up making Morpheus come off as a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's yelling hot dog ingredients on the subway and no one wants to know. I'm like, it's got hooves and tongue. It's like, well, I gave you an option to take the blue pill. It's like, well, you could have given me a bit more warning what was going to happen. <laughs> it was a metaphor, but like, go down the rabbit hole. Normally I go favorite stuff and then criticisms, but I think we're on a roll here. <laughs> Let's get into more criticisms. <laughs> what are some of your chief concerns for this film? <laughs> oh, boy. Action-oriented very specifically. A lot of it did not age well. When they were trying to go for the stylized stuff of, like, the moving camera, almost immediately there's a scene where Trinity's, like, jumping through the air, and she's doing, like, a swimmer pose to do it, and she's just spinning around, and it looked awful, and we're like, this is cheesy. Or when she jumps up to kick people and the camera moves around her while she's frozen in there, none of that is aged well. <laughs> no. None of that is aged well. <laughs> but it was so mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, at the time it was mind-blowing, and now it's just like, ah, the 90s. Man, I'm glad we're out of that. Look, am I to believe that Neo <laughs> rose up from the dead because of a Huey Lewis and the new song title? <laughs> <laughs> But it's so incredibly contrived. The Oracle told me that I would fall in love and that that man, the man that I loved, would be the one. So you see, you can't be dead. You can't be. Because I love you. I love you. To have Trinity say to him, I love you. Why? <laughs> and that point, he should already be dead, right? He be... Are there any scenes between them to establish why she gives an F about him romantically? None whatsoever. I don't know, maybe she was all hopped up on adrenaline when they stormed the building and killed a bunch of innocent people that they're trying to save. <laughs> I'm coming up with this in the heat of the moment. So you have the character of the Oracle who foresees things was that like a last ditch effort to use a loophole where trinity's like oh my god we're screwed and he's apparently not the one but the oracle said i'd love the one so maybe if i just say it out loud the universe <laughs> will believe me and we won't die <laughs> right. yeah i can totally see that and he's just such a computer nerd incel that he's just like a woman loves me i must come back from the dead Oh my god, in the age of incels, this movie takes on a really different tone. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that's something that makes me uncomfortable about this movie and why, I gotta say, I don't think I need to revisit it after this episode. Mm -mm. So, you have a bunch of people in black trench coats. There's a scene where they kill a bunch of security people who, by the movie's own admission, aren't part of the conspiracy. They're just normal folks. Yeah, they're just doing their jobs, and they're the innocent people they're trying to save. 
And when they blow all those people away, they walk onto an elevator with what might as well just be a pipe bomb. Yeah, that was definitely a homemade bomb. How do all the guns, they could just upload all that stuff from their private server? Right, yeah, that doesn't make sense. I don't know. <laughs> it is just a big computer program excuse for action scenes. This movie is all style, which is why it's meant for 14-year-olds. And that's what we were. We were just teens living a life. Ignorance is bliss. And how. <laughs> Some of the flipping around that they do. Trinity flips around in order to dodge bullets. But it's like, you're still presenting the same amount of target surface, even if you're flipping that way. So you're not making yourself harder to hit. Yeah. She's flipping parallel to the people shooting at her, you know? <laughs> Your center of mass is not even moving location. It's still right there. I know you understand what I'm saying, but for the audience, if you're not grasping my point, think of a bullseye, and then imagine how much harder or easier it is to hit if we just spin that bullseye. <laughs> the center of the bullseye is still there. You're spinning on the center axis. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> How could 11-year-old me not get it? <laughs> yeah, watching that there, it's like, oh! Exploring further this notion of terrorism that pops back up in their next movie, V, I was uncomfortable with a lot of the dialogue, like where Morpheus says, because people are still in the Matrix... The uh, agent programs can take them over, so anybody can be a threat. And he says, if you're not one of us, you're one of them. That is a actual honest-to-God tenet of terrorism from the IRA that they set down. If you're part of the system, you're part of the problem. Because you can't attack the government. They have to attack the innocent. Completely agree with your terrorism aspect. Not that you can't explore those ideas in a meaningful, thought-provoking, or possibly even a fun way, done a certain way. The way it comes off in this movie, I'd end up not really liking any of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> They're freedom fighters. How can you not? Yeah, for a freedom, an existence that totally sucks. No, we gotta live in the real world where we can't grow any crops and thing is just, everything's harder. It's just harder in every possible way. You like steak and sex? Too bad, because apparently we don't have penises out here and all the cows are dead. And hey, the made-up world is 1999. They even say it's the height of the civilization. It's before 9-11. Not such a bad time to live in. You got Britney Spears coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> She's on her way. Can it be the height of civilization without Britney? I don't think so, which is why she needs to have a career resurgence and topple Taylor Swift and the rest. <laughs> yes. Come back, Queen. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> now, with all the dumping I'm doing on this film that we're both doing. Yes. <laughs> um, how about some favorite scenes or performances? Oh, my God. Hugo Weaving. Don't get me started. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's still great. He's so good. He had an actual character act, because he went from, like, literal emotionless, glasses on, no one recognized. Then by the end, he's got the glasses off, he's taking out his earpiece, he's getting angry, 
Uh, he's getting happy that he's torturing Morpheus. He's just showing everything. He's showing everyone what a good actor he is. He's more interesting than Neo. Yes. The movie was still when Keanu Reeves was considered a bad actor. <laughs> I think it was the start of his, well, maybe he is a good actor. Keanu Reeves, I think it's more the expectations for him and the roles they give him don't lend themselves to showing his acting chops. Yeah. I don't care if you get Gary Oldman to play Neo. There's no character there. It's just a flat vein. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) But Agent Smith, however. (laughs) Uh, Agent Smith, in the scene where he's waiting for Morpheus to spill his guts, they've got him on drugs, they're interrogating him, and he has his whole moment of saying how much he hates it, policing the Matrix, and he hates people, he hates the smell, and he says he wants to get out, and the only way that's going to happen is if they find out where the last human city is so they can destroy it. In that moment, do you think the character is saying, once I accomplish my mission, they'll send me somewhere else, maybe I'll exist out of the Matrix? Or is he basically saying, I hate living with people so much, I can't wait for my existence to end and the purpose for me to be here to be done with? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, because I don't. Would they? Would they just delete him when they're done? And they're like, well, we're done with this matrix. We're going to delete you. That's the way I read it. I mean, why not? They're all computers. Or would they just put him in? Because there's so many machines outside that are like, what is it even the point of these machines? <laughs> right? Was it like the big bad, the outside world big bad guy in charge of the matrix? Just this weird swarm of bots that made faces. <laughs> are you referencing the sequels? Maybe. Let's not do that. You're right. Uh, (laughs) My mistake. Maybe he would have got put into one of those cool squid bots that were cooler than everybody else in the movie. It just made him more badass to me to think that, okay, he's evolved a bit just because he's been around people so much. Mm -hmm. But not to the extent that he holds life or in particular his life, his existence the thought of just being switched off once this is all over wouldn't be appealing to him. So he's like, Morpheus, I hate you people so much, I prefer oblivion over having to interact with you. <laughs> As a computer program, he's sentient from the get-go. Like He didn't have to grow up or anything. So he's instantly self-aware. He doesn't have to go through those types of changes like we did, <laughs> where we found the Matrix cool and now we don't. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't have to go through any of that, so he's instantly like, oh, this sucks. So I guess his character growth would be hating it even more. Because <laughs> he complained about the uh, smell, too. And it's just like, are they going to give him a nose on the outside? or? Because <laughs> he definitely has olfactory senses inside the Matrix. This movie exists in so many genres and subgenres, which I think is one of its problems, is that it just throws everything including the kitchen sink, into the proceedings. But which one do you think is most what the movie is about, and do you think it does it well? It's probably a huge disagreement with what the filmmakers think, but I want to say it's most an action movie. I think it's an action movie first, and then they built a better story around it than a lot of action movies have. You know, we saw it parodied in every movie for at least 10 years. So I want to say it's an action movie. I would also say it's specifically 
a kung fu action flick. Oh, ooh. Because the other stuff it teases with the gunplay and the larger philosophical ideas, it's all just a tease. A tease that doesn't deliver. <laughs> like the philosophical themes are window dressing. And the only thing that really seems to satisfy on its own are those kung fu moments where it's like, well, they got guns, but screw it. They need to fight with their hands and feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was the big fight in the subway, and yet after that scene, Agent Smith had a gun, and that's how we put Neo down. <laughs> Maybe the filmmakers put all these inconsistencies in there for us to discover like people would the Matrix. You and I are like Neo. We can see all the code, and we need to put that in the recycling bin. Delete, delete, delete. <laughs> So on that level of being a kung fu movie, it doesn't deliver because there aren't enough of those scenes. And imagine if they had really focused on that. I think it could have been a more successful film. It was already successful. I don't think, I don't think we need to nitpick our way into making it better. <laughs> it was lucky to come out in a particular time and a particular place. Put it out now and it's just a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. And it's not even the best example of these type of movies. <laughs> no, it's because <laughs> it's the point of the podcast, right? We're talking about two movies we found better. Pretty much, yeah. So let us move on to also 1999, but came out a little bit after The Matrix. The 13th Floor, perhaps even more obscure than Dark City. So we have a tech executive named Douglas Hall who investigates the murder of his mentor and boss, Hannon Fuller. Douglas jacks into a simulation of 1937 Los Angeles, an experimental VR program developed by the pair, to learn what Fuller was doing there in his final days and what happens when made-up people discover their world is a lie. 13th Floor and Dark City both have a 40s film noir aesthetic, and to some extent, The Matrix. Like, they use a lot of shadows in that, too. But what do you think about that relating to these fake reality stories, and why do these sorts of movies lean into those tools a lot? Film noir, in general, is always like oh, a good L.A. detective story, right? And good L.A. detective stories are dark and gritty, and it's always raining. It never rains in Los Angeles. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's always sunny in Los Angeles. If you want your reality to match what a detective noir should be, it's got to be a fake reality, right? It's a really easy way to visualize the mystery that the characters are going through. And like you say with the detective stories, when you see a guy in a suit and a fedora, you automatically go, ooh, there's a mystery to be solved. Something afoot. <laughs> Compared to the other two movies, what do you think is the distinction with the philosophical questions or themes that the 13th floor is grappling with? The 1939 fake world, those guys don't really question their existence as much. The Vincent D'Onofrio character alludes to it, but then that's it. He goes off the deep end. Douglas Hall ruminates in a couple scenes... A few moments where he thinks what it must be like to live in a fake world. 
But unique to this one compared to the other two, the other fake realities, the people were subjugated by them. In this movie, our main character is one of the people responsible for making fake worlds and fake people. So you get the unique perspective of what it's like to be the godlike figure that helped set these things into motion when Douglas is talking to Ashton, played by D'Onofrio. It's him having to look one of his creations in the face and decide what morality there is in treating sentient simulations as toys. But then that same character, Vincent D'Onofrio, does the same thing. He kidnaps Douglas Hall's equivalent and throws him in a trunk. And we get to see him come out into the real world. It's not a long scene, but it's what I want out of these sorts of movies. Because you've got Ashton seeing the hard drives that contain his world, and he goes fruity. He goes completely crazy, and understandably so, because Mm -hmm. didn't really exist until a few moments ago. That's another weird thing. I just they created this whole AI that can inhabit a human brain without any problem, and they don't discuss that at all. There's a whole discussion there to be had that they just don't have. It's a shortcut that they take. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that actually goes into something I thought about when the movie ended. It's about 100 minutes long. I think we could tack on another 20 minutes to flesh out some of these ideas. Go full two hours and then just let some scenes breathe. I don't think we spent a lot of time with the detective, Detective McBain. I knew you would get that. (laughs) (laughs) I I kept, I am (laughs) McBain. Dennis Haysbert, great actor. Unlike William Hurt, I think he's underutilized in this movie. He could have added a better perspective. Like you said earlier, we're from the billionaire creator point of view, opposed to the peasant's point of view. It would have been fun to pair them up. In the same way that Murdoch and Bumstead get paired up later in the movie. And they do both discover the mystery on their own. It's on separate tracks from one another. And it would just be nice to get Haysbert some more screen time. Yeah. (laughs) Bump up that paycheck. Out of the supporting characters, who do you think has the best subplot? I love me some Vincent D'Onofrio, but he's two separate characters, honestly. And his fake world if that's the proper term. His fake world counterpart, I guess, does have a good arc, but he goes crazy. Even though they don't do too much with Whitney, the quote-unquote real guy, who's a programmer, when he thinks that they're going to shut it all down, which is how I interpreted why he went in to the system, it's still a fun little like Twilight Zone moment where he wants to see the world he created before it gets shut down. And wouldn't you know it, it's right when his counterpart kidnapped a dude in his trunk. (laughs) (laughs) And gets pulled over for it. Man, Vincent D'Onofrio, what a chameleon. He had so many fun roles in the 90s. This, The Cell, Men in Black. What a great creepy actor. (laughs) I love me some Edgar. Give me Edgar every day of the week. And who would have thunk that Edgar would end up in Law & Order? (laughs) Edgar's in Law and Order, I'm going to watch it. You know, I could see him being a cop in a David Fincher movie, but not not primetime TV. 
that was probably his big, I don't want to say big break, because he's a good actor, and he was in Full Metal Jacket and <laughs> that movie, but that was probably his big exposure to the public at large. Hey, is he a younger, in terms of his energy and his body of work, is he like a younger John Malkovich? Yeah, I definitely would say he's a younger John Malkovich. What were your favorite scenes or performances? Craig Bierko there, Douglas Hall. Uh, this is like the only really movie that he stands out to me as an actor. The rest of his filmography, I can never recall. I think this is a great example of what it does to the story when you don't cast Tom Cruise. When you cast a lesser-known guy, and I think it's to the movie's credit, because you get to really focus on the mystery and less on, ooh, that guy's so handsome, or, oh, look at that star power. So there's a pseudo-femme fatale in this movie, which, like a lot of the characters, is just a bit underdeveloped. But this character of Jane Fuller, the dead boss's daughter, played by Gretchen Mole, who I love. Everyone loves Gretchen. Gretchen Mole. But there's a scene in a grocery store, Douglas locates Jane Fuller, but she's not who he's expecting. And their interplay, I think, encapsulates the themes of the movie so well. And they have this budding romance. There's no reference to it on her side. And I thought it was a nice character actor moment for them to play. It slowed things down for a bit to just get out there what it must really feel like the situation they're in. Did that stand out to you as a good one? A lot of these people had to play two characters, or in one case, three characters. That probably was what led to the lack of character development throughout the film. That whole scene, it gave a lot of information without giving you a lot of information, too. Mr. Hall! You forgot your credit card. No problem. I, uh, sorry about staring at you in there. I must get that a lot. Yeah, yeah, but mostly from the wrong kinds of guys. <laughs> You're not from around here, are you? What makes you ask? Well, it's just... I don't know, I just had this funny feeling that we met before. Maybe in another life. That's also a scene that if you haven't been paying attention to the story, you just watch it go on, why isn't this playing differently? They bring up the deja vu in that scene, and that's big. Because we're dealing with alternate personas, basically that game Second Life, is that what it's called? Uh, yes, that's, yeah, it's a whole different... Yeah, uh, pretty much The Sims. Mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't it so convenient, and I understand, but it still made me chuckle. How Douglas goes into these different worlds, and it just so happens that everybody is in close proximity with one another. <laughs> it's like if I went into a fake world, and it just so happens my avatar is friends with a guy named John, or somebody, you know, your equivalent, and I'm like, damn it, it doesn't matter where I go, he's always following me. <laughs> no escape, I'll follow you to the ends of every fake earth. <laughs> But of course, if you don't play it that way, then the whole 
premise of the movie, you're not really taking advantage of it, right? Because you want to see these people play different characters and that freaky, like, oh my god, it's somebody different we haven't met before. Yeah. But it is also kind of silly. It is. <laughs> but it's. I guess you save paying different actors a bunch when you could just have the same guys come back. What's your biggest criticism for this movie? When they first jack into the 1939 thing, it is overly dramatic. No one knows how computers work in 1999, and they just have this weird scene that is so overly dramatic, it's out of control. <laughs> it almost plays like Quantum Leap. Oh, he's going in, it's crazy. Oh no. He's going to see himself in the mirror and go, oh boy. <laughs> I think the ending goes in a very soap opera direction that asks the audience to make a lot more over Douglas and Jane's relationship than the movie has put any effort into. <laughs> Just gotta accept, like, oh, they met a few times, and now they're gonna spend the rest of their lives together. Weird optimism about how the world was supposed to look in 2024, and it's just like, oh boy. <laughs> Is that optimism, though? Because it looks like the ocean eroded half of the beachfront properties in California. <laughs> oh, yeah, touche. Touche, sir. <laughs> it's like if that romance subplot was gonna be front and center, headed into the finale... They need at least another 20 minutes. Let that develop. To its credit, however, as flimsy as the love plot is, at least they give it a couple more scenes than The Matrix does. True, they had a little more love for it. Because The Matrix was just like, how fast can we get to Kung Fu? How fast can we get to Keanu Reeves flying like Superman? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought the script said Christopher Reeve. No, it's Keanu. It's Keanu. <laughs> Keanu and you can't read. They have a character in the movie that turns into a serial killer because he doesn't care about the simulated people. Is he an isolated incident, or do a lot of people that use it go nuts like that? I don't know, because our main character went in, he didn't have the urge to murder anybody. However, his mentor did go in and expressly wanted to just have sex with a bunch of young girls. Maybe they were programmed to enjoy it. That's, that's some... No, take that one back. Is the detective character in that a positive early example where they said, you know, I don't care about the race of the actor. I just want the best performer to play McBain. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was not written for a black guy. Come on. <laughs> no, I don't think it was, but he's got, he's got that beautiful voice. And... <laughs> he did a whole series of commercials with that silky smooth voice. Yeah, he did. Allstate. With accident forgiveness, they guarantee your rates won't go up just because of an accident. He was on that show on CBS for a while about the dude's brain got put into a superior body or something. Yeah, now and again. Yes. <laughs> that wasn't such a bad show. I enjoy it. Uh, I only watched it because I think it was um, John Goodman, <laughs> the original owner of the brain. <laughs> and then they put it into some handsome guy. Let's move to my favorite segment which is TLDL, too long, didn't listen. I'm going to ask you some questions. Just give me nice, quick, concise answers. Okay, which I never do. Which movie stands up to repeat viewings the most? I think 13th Floor. Which movie do you think is harder to follow on a first watch? Dark City. Who's the more interesting protagonist, Neo, Murdoch, or Douglas? Murdoch. That's a no-brainer. 
Which movie do you watch with a group of friends to generate the most conversation about it afterwards? Unfortunately, The Matrix. <laughs> now, is that only because of the nostalgia factor? Yeah, I think there's a nostalgia factor, and it's the one you don't have to pay the attention the most. Okay, well, let's say you're a Gen Zer. Which movie? Um, let's go with Dark City. Carrie Ann Moss, Jennifer Connelly, or Gretchen Mull? Oh, Gretchen Mull. Trinity, Emma, or Jane? Uh, Emma. Which movie has the most plot holes? Probably The Matrix. <laughs> yeah, I was leading you there like a horse to water. <laughs> yeah, I'm drinking, sir. I'm drinking. <laughs> Sometimes I include some of these questions just to see if you're being honest with me. <laughs> <laughs> Which movie should you absolutely go see if there's an opportunity to watch it on the big screen? Big screen? Ooh, I'm going to go with Dark City. What's worse? Knowing everything in the Matrix, like a juicy ribeye and beer, isn't real, and that robots are harvesting your real body's warmth. At any moment, a user could jack into your body and do whatever depraved thing they want, or living a perpetual nightlife in a city that you can never leave. Probably having your body be able to be hijacked at any time by a person you don't know. Yeah, it's like, what's stray pubic hair doing in my teeth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Like, you went, there's a whole group of dudes out at the bar. I'm like, hey, buddy. I'm like, what? <laughs> I've never met any of you. Why can't I walk straight? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on here? Why is that the first place we both went? <laughs> okay, now these last three, I think you have a unique perspective being in a marriage. Okay, is it cheating if you sleep with someone else in the Matrix? Um, yes. It's an emotional factor. It's not just the physical act. Is it cheating if you sleep with your spouse's digital clone? Ooh. <sighs> I would probably be told yes. <laughs> Is it cheating if you and your spouse remember you cheating, but you actually never did? <laughs> it's you cheated on me in a dream argument. No, there's no actual cheating occurred. However, I've heard stories of people having a dream of somebody cheating and then waking up and just feeling really sore about it. That's a real thing. It's not happened to me, but that is a real thing. Any final words or questions for me? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How'd you come up with the idea for this episode? Well, uh, lately I've just been thinking of movies I haven't seen in a while that I really love. And I started with Dark City and said, well, I also like The 13th Floor. And then I was like, well, I think John won't let me get away with it unless we also do The Matrix. The problem is they're always going to be compared to The Matrix. The Matrix, it needs to go off on a timer when people's kids enter high school. And it's like, okay, now's the time to watch this, and then let's never discuss it again. Yeah, don't bring it up ever again. They made no sequels. They did no soft reboot. So, would we say that out of these three, Dark City is the strongest overall movie? Yes, I would. It's a good movie. 13th Floor is a fun little movie. Dark City is the most, like, oh, what? <laughs> Thought-provoking and Keith Sutherland-having movie. I feel like 13th Floor is disposable in a good way, whereas The Matrix 
It's like it's telling me it's smart, but I shake my head and go, no, bro, you're disposable. Not feeling it. (laughs) 